Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by former co-host Ollie Brady to talk about some content from what I like to call the very early Middle Ages, also known as the Roman Empire, the Eagle. So welcome, Ollie. Uh, it's great to be back, sir. Although I'm not sure if your listeners have picked up the relish with which you say former when you're reaching <laughs> out me as being former co-host, because it's not just former co-host, it's former co-host. Ollie I Brady. own this so, podcast yeah. now, Ollie. I own it. Sarah, you always own it. There's no doubt about that. But it's just, it's just like, it's the hard F on former. It's just, it, it hurts my feelings. Sorry, my feelings um, that I have because we have to get those hard. I'm sorry, um, you're you're much missed. Sarah, I have a question for you. Yes. You are teaching in the particular uh, educational institute that I'm not going to mention because I'm not sure if we're allowed to. Um, but yeah, it's allowed. Do you have a course dedicated now to medieval set movies? I do. I will be. I offered it last fall, and I will be offering it again this coming spring. And is there much of a an uptake from students in this? Yeah, I got uh, it. I think it filled actually the first time. We'll see how it turns out the second. I bet it will fill the second time too. So I just I want to graciously accept. Your thanks um, <laughs> for, for helping to prepare your syllabus for the last years. And, I'll do uh, like a little acknowledgement footnote for you. Oh, yeah, 100%. Anytime, anytime. Just just, just to acknowledge that it was my idea in the first place. Um, and also, no, it wasn't. But um, I will pretend this to my dying days. Uh, but also, can you just confirm to the listeners at home that you're number one and most beloved movie on your movie course is in fact the 13th warrior the 13th warrior did go over very well i would say the most popular probably was monty python and the holy grail but uh, the 13th warrior was very well liked as opposed to some other movies that were definitely not you can't use monty python and the holy grail that's like one of those obviously beautiful people who you know win (laughs) beauty awards right (laughs) you you want you want to have those hard to find beauties you know the the undefinable beauty qualities that so the 13th warrior is like the girl next door who you you know looked at the whole time and you were like i never realized yeah that's exactly what the 13th warrior is (laughs) it's that movie stroke girl you live next door uh, and everybody who enjoys it is a nice guy. Wait, no, this is <laughs> <laughs> But today we're talking about a movie about the ultimate nice guys. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who you'd say you should be rewarded with nice women, but there are no women. So <laughs> you don't well, have to worry we, about it. We'll get to this, Sarah. Because as far as I can tell, this movie is the most recent movie to pass the Sarah If Decker test. You mean the most? So, you mean the worst failure I've ever had? Well, why don't you tell your listeners about yourself, Sarah? Uh, that's supposed to be you. You're supposed to tell the listeners about yourself. 
I know, but every time I come on, I end up doing this where I t- I read your spots because I'm so used to it. And they're going, what? so, Miss Decker. I mean, sorry, Dr. Decker. I just, gave, I, I just gave a look for the listeners in case they were wondering. As soon as I said miss, right, before I even started my joke, I could feel a through the internet slap coming my way. Um, Dr. It's Dr. like a, it's across an ocean. Did you know anything about the setting of this movie, The Eagle, uh, before I insisted we watch it the last time I was on? You mean, did I know anything about Roman Britain or did I know anything about what this movie was and what it was about? Well, Sarah, I know you know a lot about Roman Britain because you know a lot about all historical events. But But no, I'd never heard of this movie. Good, because I I saw this movie in the cinema, I think, and I bought it on DVD and it was sitting on my shelf in my, my DVD shelf, which is actually behind me. Uh, Sarah can see a wardrobe behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not. That's actually just full of DVDs. That's not. Mm. Uh, it's got no clothing in it or anything like this. It's just. It's Your just my stealth DVD, DVD shelf. Shelves. Uh, and um, yeah, so it was in there, just like gathering dust. Uh, and I don't think I've ever met another person who's seen this movie. Wow. I look forward to hearing when the episode comes out if anyone else has ever seen this movie. I I had never heard of this movie. At all. Like, I did not know this movie existed. I bet you a lot of our listeners, or sorry, our listeners, they're not my they're not <laughs> My listeners. listeners your listeners um, have seen it. I bet you, um, let me see, Steve Olend. I'm going to make a guess that Steve has seen this. Steve, uh, let us know. Definitely. Okay, so Sarah, tell us more about the movie. So today's film is The Eagle, which came out in 2011. It stars Channing Tatum as Marcus Flavius Aquila, who does not strip in this movie, which was a big disappointment and sorrow. It also stars Jamie Bell, who is Billy Elliot. He is also Tintin as Eska. He is Tintin. So, I, I, again, so I'm looking at Sarah's notes, and uh, it says Jamie Bell, a.k.a. Tintin. I was like, his name Tintin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But obviously, Tintin. Tintin in in the Steven Spielberg movie. Yes, which uh, is also a movie I have never seen, but I've listened to the Blank Check episode on it, so that's basically the same thing. I, listen, those Blank Check boys make every single movie sound delightful and entertaining, um, including movies which are not, like Tintin. Um, <laughs> although, so I should not watch Tintin? Actually, I kind of, I'll take that back. I kind of enjoyed Tintin. It also has Donald Sutherland as Uncle Aquila, Channing Tatum's uncle, which does, I assume, legally mean that Channing Tatum and Kiefer Sutherland are cousins. I think that that's what it means. But yes, Donald, Donald Sutherland and Channing Tatum cast in this movie. It's so like I've lo- I'm lost for words because the accent work in this movie is oh my god, atrocious. It is. My God. The cast people who can vaguely sound at least European, not North Eastern America, because that's what it basically is. Like, they all sound like they're from, like, New England. So we need to talk about the accents in this movie, because you've got Donald Sutherland, and Donald Sutherland is, you know, he just sounds Canadian. It's he, He's just Canadian, and that just is what it is. 
Then there's Channing Tatum, who is an American, and she was doing this, like, kind of half-assed British accent. And then... then not doing a British accent, Sarah. I didn't say it was I, a good I, British accent. I said he was trying to do a British accent. I don't accent. even think he's trying. I think like, he's trying. He sounds... He sounds like he should be on Days of Our Lives. <laughs> we should first start with... In the year is 140 AD, and of course it says AD. I'm going to bitch about this now, actually. That uh, Okay. So in our standard dating system, we often, you will see the use of AD, which stands for Anno Domini, or in the year of our Lord, referring to Jesus. The more neutral way to refer to this is CE, or Common Era, which means the same thing, but is less Jesus-y. And this in particular feels off here because this is a period where we are still talking about, like, pagan Romans who do not think they are living in the year of our Lord, Jesus Christ. But They could not give less of a shit about Jesus. Sarah, that's for us. It's for us, all of us. Not for me. Who are living in the years of our Lord. That's right. Not my fucking Lord. He's our Sarah. I'm going to have to cut that out. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, don't, don't, don't you dare, don't you dare. So much blasphemy just got cut out. Even if I leave it in, you're going to think that there was more blasphemy cut out. But, <laughs> That's um, true. But now everyone's just going to be imagining all the other things I said. What else? I, I might even just put in some random beeps so people think that you're swearing along. <laughs> but uh, it, it's for us. Like, it's not for... Like, the people... Channing Tatum's not walking along into his hut as he is at the beginning of the movie and seeing the giant numbers 140 AD, Sarah. I know, but that doesn't mean I can't still dislike it. I'm not saying... I have the right to hate everything I want. I am just... I'm just happy that we have a movie that starts with a date and that date is not just in the Middle Ages or... That is true. early Christendom... That is true. I do appreciate that we have a distinct date that we can use to definitively, in certain cases, say that things are wrong, uh, as we will get to later in this podcast. So we learned that 20 years prior to this, the Ninth Legion disappeared somewhere in northern Britain, and that 5,000 men and their standard were lost, and that in, a, in that in response, the Emperor Hadrian built a wall, Hadrian's Wall. But now, Marcus Flavius Aquila, the son of the senior centurion of the ninth, is here in Britain to regain his family's honor? Yeah. It's, like, not that clear. Because, I, like, I, I spent, like, half the movie being, like, is he, like, looking for his dad? Because... Oh, Sarah. <sighs> he wasn't looking for his dad. He was looking for a daddy. But we talk <sighs> about that as we go along. Um... I think that we should uh, reclaim uh, AD. So instead of saying Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord, that's uh, <laughs> that hour. Uh, I think we should change it to 20 AD. So it's 20 after dad. And, uh, <laughs> and that's what Marcus Flavius Aquila is doing in this movie. He's trying to find his dad because he was a little kid growing up in Rome and his dad went off. And uh, obviously as a... Uh, a centurion or a, a leader of um, a legion. He he had like some sort of standing, like seen as, you know, I, w- I would say it, like those kind of soldiers were like 
politicking soldiers, you know, like generals yeah. and stuff like we have now. So he was like one of those guys. And then the fact that he managed to lose one of their standards, um, the eagle, as as they say, uh, is, is basically he brought shame on the family and shame on the entirety of the Roman Empire. So, uh, yeah, that's what um, Channing Tatum's coming back to do. He's going to dance his little ass... Sorry, no, that's a different movie. He's going to fight his little ass off to reclaim the uh, the eagle, which was lost. Yeah, so he is, he is there to reclaim the eagle and demonstrate that his family has honor. It isn't just uh, that family that lost the eagle. Sir, I, I know um, you're going to bring it up later on. Were the eagles a real thing? Not the eagles. We know they were a real thing because we've all had to listen to them for 40 years. But was there such a thing as a standard? Like, was there a Roman eagle? Like, was it was it big? They, they did carry standards into battle, which uh, which would have had, a, like, something like that on it. Yes. Uh, the... There is some question about the exact. There's there's some complicate. There's some complications to some extent, but they did bring in uh, standards into battle, like and this. Would Napoleon's eagles have been an homage to the Roman ones? Yes, I believe so. Uh, which is, which is pretty. It's pretty standard. Like a lot of the imperial powers are uh, essentially kind of trying to make gestures toward Romanness. So Napoleon's eagles, the Holy Roman Empire's eagles, uh, that these are all uh, kind of recalling the uh, Roman Empire essentially. Excellent. Um, yes, but yeah, but there's a couple of different kinds of standards that they would have brought into battle, and one with an a depiction of an eagle would have been one of them. And was it a solid gold eagle? Because if it was, these boys are lumping that thing around like it's made out of plastic. They, I believe, would have not been solid gold, but they would have been gilded. No, nobody cares about gilded. So they would have looked fancier than they were and probably been a little less heavy than something that was solid gold. Typical Romans. It's yeah. about how it looks. No yeah. substance. <laughs> That's what we really know the Romans for. Just all style and no <laughs> substance. Also, I know so. We all say always say about the Romans. Let's put some big roads out there and then do nothing else. What about the healthcare system? Shh, stop asking. What have the What have the Romans ever done for us? (laughs) Sarah, um, have you ever been to Britain? I have been to Britain. And when you were there, did it feel like you were going through the bayou? Uh, you know, it didn't. You know, I, I was looking at this movie and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in Louisiana, which is very close to me, as opposed to Britain, which is not particularly close to me. It starts with them going down a little river um, in, their, in their kayaks. Um, because it's the only it's way they basically a swamp. Things. They're and in a, a swamp. swamp. Like, <laughs> I've never seen anything that looks like this in anywhere in Ireland and England. And I've been up and down both of these countries and i'm confused because like, it said they did film on location like in scotland i think mostly uh, a lot of it was in scotland so yeah so i'm like where scotland. where did they find this bayou i don't know it, it, it could just be a camera angles or something yeah it is it's it definitely looks weird does not look like uh, your standard northern england i couldn't imagine sean bean like stepping out of the water there or anything oh no uh, there's also cows that are hanging out there, and I really, really loved the subtitle that just informed me, loud mooing, especially because the mooing was not actually that loud. It was like moderate mooing. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it. Was, I would say it was kind of muted, like the cows were sad, maybe because they're, 
they were transposed to the bayou. And they're like, right. if we make too much got to get out of here. are going to get us, yeah. <laughs> so we've got Channing Tatum, Marcus, who is there as their new commander. And initially the Legion is pretty unimpressed since, you know, he's the son of the guy who lost the eagle and he's pretty young. They start making fun of him as just being like, you know, as not really knowing what to do. Uh, he like goes off for a bit and they're like, what's he's doing? And they're like, he's going to go just get out his rule book so he knows what to do. He, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, I get that he's the son of a famous legionnaire, right? But the way the other soldiers treat him or the other centurions treat him is the way I would probably treat someone like that. Like, yeah. realistically, they're coursed. Like, he, he, he's, you know, bringing the shame of what his father did to him. And I get that's the whole point of the movie, but... I find it hard to believe that he would somehow get out of Centurion School and get to choose where his next location is going to be. Yeah, I will talk about that more later, but it's weird that he's just like, I had to go to where my father went. They asked me where I wanted to go. I'm like, did they? It's the army. Yeah, that's not how the army works, son. They right. tell you where you're right. going. And the answer yeah. is the front line. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're not choosing where you go. They want you to right? die even if they don't want you to die the answer is never like oh please tell me what would you prefer england or spain yeah and also if your answer is england when they ask you if you prefer england or spain you've answered incorrectly right this is actually this was my academic career is that my advisor in undergrad convinced me that i should study spain instead of england because the weather and the food were better and he was right well, i stand by the decision better, but is the food better in Spain, Sarah? Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I like a good, hearty, like, British British meal, but the food in, the food in Spain is really good. That ham is, that ham is amazing. Whatever. Sarah, what's his, uh, what's his right-hand man's name in this movie? So his right-hand man is named Lutorius, and he, by the way, I will also note, plays a vampire king on True Blood, which does take place in the bayou, so Lutorius is actually in the correct location. That's where they actually picked him up. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. meant to be in the movie, he was just there. Was yeah, like, just hey, grabbed him from the bayou. Like, can we give you an hilarious-sounding name? It's. I feel like Latorius on its own wouldn't be hilarious. What makes it hilarious is that when they say things like wake Latorius, it absolutely sounds like they're just saying wake clitoris. It does. I I went back and I listened to it and I said it to Sarah at the time because we watched this at the same time doing that like through the internet watching stuff. I was like, hold on a second. What did that just he just call that guy? The can't possibly be that. It one hundred percent sounds sounds like he says. Wake clitorious like not not just a little bit like it i feel like the actor like channing tatum may have said it on purpose he might have it's he does not say lutorious oh no it's wake clitorious yeah like that very very quickly so yeah um so basically there it's his first night on the job and he wakes up all of the soldiers because he gets a feeling but it turns out his feeling was right. And in fact, it's because he, you know, woke everybody up and, uh, you know, took decisive action and all that and had good instincts that they're able to uh, basically, you know, they lose some people, but they're able to mostly like fight off a pretty big attack. 
yeah, from they some of the local like Britons. He'd sent out a patrol earlier in the day and who didn't come back. And then the right. next day we get a big fight mm-hmm. um, between the locals led by some sort of, uh, they say a druid, but uh, anytime right. I've ever imagined a druid, it's like a weakling dude with robes. This is like some sort of sexy older man with like his <laughs> chest on display and he's all right. muscles. I'm like, right. This is a druid, is this? Like, this guy's just some sort of badass. Um, no, like that guy's a warlord. He does come across like a warlord. And uh, and he speaks pretty good Irish. Which, honestly, I'm, I'm genuinely impressed that they bothered for this movie. Good for them. Yeah, so theoretically they should be speaking Scots Gaelic. And I don't know enough about Scots Gaelic to tell you that it's markedly different from Gaelic Gaelic, I mean mm-hmm. Irish. But that guy is speaking good enough Irish for me to be able to understand exactly what he's saying. Yeah. And I do not have great Irish. So yeah. it's good enough and enunciated well enough that yeah. somebody who, you know, only did the bare minimum of Irish right. learning can like what's coming up on the subtitles. But no, but I, I am impressed that even if it's not exactly the same as Scott's Gaelic, I I appreciate that they like picked a language which is like a real language that is at least relatively close to the language that they are supposed to be speaking and stuck with it and actually people did a good job as opposed to like a lot of the things where I've seen where either people are speaking basically nonsense or they seem to have like run whatever they're doing like whatever they're doing they seem to have like run through Google Translate basically and it's a nightmare they put it through Google Translate or they all just decide to do some sort of version of pig Latin Right. It seems to be a common, like, oh, sounds enough like Latin for most people not to understand. And we don't really care about the experts. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and then there's like Mel Gibson's Latin, which is like, where did you get these translations from? Anyway. <laughs> Man, so he's always shitting on Mel. Constantly. As he, as he deserves. So they have this big battle and there's this chariot that has like spikes on the wheels on each end and this fucks up Barkus's leg. So he's not doing amazingly. But unlike there's another dude who like literally just no longer has a leg. So, you know, comparatively. There's some good leg chopping in this. Um, Yeah. So Marcus uh, rides out to try and save his men. Uh, They form a shield wall, which is cool. Because uh, anytime I see the Romans doing shield wall stuff, it always makes me yeah, get a little bit excited and giddy about it because it mm-hmm. reminds me of reading about them as a kid and thinking how cool they were. And uh, and they, they do look cool in practice. They, I don't think they would ever be as effective as movies seem to make them out. But basically they turn into a giant turtle and are able to walk over and save their men. And then the uh, Scots, right, the, um, the Brigant, uh, bring out... Yeah. Um, they bring out these chariots which have giant scythes attached to the wheels and obviously that's not great for a shield wall so they start to run and right. um, Marcus makes a last ditch attempt to save his men by taking down one of the chariots and he gets really really badly injured but he does manage to yes. save his men. Yeah so good job Channing Tatum. He's pretty seriously injured and wakes up to be introduced to Uncle Donald Sutherland, which is just, this is the point of the movie at which Channing Tatum was already enough. And then we bring in Donald Sutherland 
And at this point, I'm just like, I, I just checked out on being able to suspend disbelief on these people being Romans. I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. Donald Sutherland is... So this happens in movies a lot, right? Where you get a well-renowned, excellent actor. Like, Donald Sutherland's an excellent actor. Oh, yeah, Donald Sutherland's great. I'll tell you who this happens with a lot. is Jonathan Price. Mm. He's another example of this. Where they pop up and show up in a movie and it's completely tongue-in-cheek to them. Yeah. Like, they are not taking this serious. Like, Kiefer Sutherland's dad, right, um, Donald, is Kiefer Sr. 100% having a ball here. Yeah. Like, he is chewing the scenery, but he's he's not acting in any way. Like, he's, he's like, a, just picture your jovial granddad from yeah. when you were growing up. That's who yeah. he is. I can't ever imagine any Roman of any standing ever no. acting like this. No. Well, I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not enjoying the performance, but it just feels so out of place that I, like, yeah. I'm, I'm agreeing with Sarah here. It just takes you completely out of the movie. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I can't quite handle these people being Romans, but that's fine. That's fine. So... Channing Tatum, I guess basically, I don't know, just kind of failed upwards. So like his mediocrity of like being in charge of one day and of having like gotten himself seriously injured uh, wins him a lot of awards, but it does also win him an honorable discharge. So because he is seriously injured. He gets seriously injured. They give him uh, a bracer of honor or whatever they want to call it. Yeah. So basically... um, a funky looking bracelet. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if you were still a soldier would probably mean something. But since he's getting honorably discharged, uh, it's not really going to mean much. And he, he, you know, he throws a little hissy fit. Like, that's what he yes. does. Um, he's like, no! And he's taking this really personally when it seems very obvious that it's because, yeah, of course you have to discharge him. He seems like he physically cannot fight. Yeah, he can barely walk. Yeah. And he like, yeah, and he seems to think like, why don't you like believe in me? I'm like, because you, you can't move. That's why. It's not about you or your dad. I saw you need help from two other people to take a shit this morning. Yeah. That's why I don't believe you're going to go back and take Scotland for us Romans. Right. Um, your inability to walk is a bad thing here. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's uh, he's very silky. He's very silky. Yeah. So he then watches a gladiatorial combat and intervenes because there's this young Briton man who seems very brave. And he intervenes to ask that this person be shown mercy and be allowed to live despite having lost. I, I'm going to question the bravery aspect of this. So he really just seems like he doesn't give a shit. Yeah, he's just standing there and he's refusing to fight. Right. Yeah. Now, um, I I I understand. Like you might be there going, I'm not going to put on a show for you people. Mm-hmm. But if your choices are fight and die or do nothing and die, then surely you should fight. Like, those are your, your only two options. Like, yeah. Like, 95% of the time, 99% of the time, like, let's realistically, 
99.99999% of the time, you are not coming out of that alive. So Right, but I think it is a statement that he's not going to, you know, do this for their amusement. Um, uh, and so he's, like, making that statement that he's not going to do that, and that as part of that, he then, like, he's not going to fight at all, but he's also, he's not going to, like, run or flinch or whatever. I don't know, when I see him doing this, it makes me think to myself, this is the kind of man who won't be readily willing to kill children um, later on in the movie. And as we know, the sign of a real hero is your willingness to want to kill children. They it would back later, guys. It's at least it's it's the smart thing to do when killing yeah. children. Marcus is the smart thing, and he wants Marcus to loves kill. fucking killing kids. Yep. So Uncle Aquila then purchases this young man who is named Eska as a slave for Marcus. That's right, guys. Our heroes buy another human being in this movie. Yep. Look at, but they're nice slave owners. They're they're the good ones. They're the good ones. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I, I always find like I I understand that it's something that would have been happening in twenty AD twenty after Dad went missing, um, but. It's still just such a weird thing to ever be in a position where, oh, yeah, he bought himself a slave. Uh, you know, here's a present I bought him for you because you seemed to like him when you saved him earlier in the day. Like, that's And I'll, I'll talk about slavery more later and how Roman slavery actually was not race-based. But it is still slavery and it's still bad and this movie has like a weird absence of like judgment about slavery. <laughs> Sarah, I'm not sure if you meant you meant the inflection that you said there, but there's just something so funny about somebody going, it's still slavery and it's still bad. <laughs> but more importantly, um, Marcus has saved Eska. Eska now owes him a life debt or something. But by life debt, this just appears to mean that the two of these guys want to get it on like every single scene between Eska played by Bell and Marcus played by Channing Tatum they are sizzling on the screen their like, sexual was, tension is off the goddamn charts it is literally off the charts like this is not something people imagine there, there is a scene where they bring in a new surgeon or chirurgeon as uh, I'm sure it was spelled back in the day, because I, I love the fact that you used to have a CH at the beginning. Um, but they bring in a surgeon, and uh, he's going to do a better job of fixing Marcus's leg. And Jamie Bell has to hold him down, so Eska has to hold him down. And, I mean, it really is like they're having sex in this scene. The like, position combined with their facial expressions, it's like that... There, it is absolutely what it looks like. Like, if you took that scene out of context, that is absolutely what every single person would assume is happening. They are staring deeply into each other's eyes. And then afterwards, Marcus can't even make eye contact with him the next day and ask him, like, did I, did I unman myself? Like, I, uh, that's one way to describe what you did, yeah. I also just need to note that this movie then is to some degree centered on this whole life debt thing, right? This like, oh, well, he's not going to kill me because he promised he wouldn't. He gave his word because he owes me a life debt. I feel like the Star Wars prequels ruined that with Jar Jar Binks and nobody can ever use that plotline again. 
I would also just like to note at this point, we're like, I don't know, what, 20 minutes into this movie? We have, there's like not a single woman in this movie. Like you would absolutely think like, wow, like all of these people definitely reproduce asexually. Um, yeah, they reproduce asexually. Channing Tatum has several like longing thoughts about his dad. Mm-hmm. And like, Does he have a mother? I don't know. Like, but this is what I'm saying is Channing Tatum is so manly. Mm-hmm. He's so goddamn manly in this movie that no woman could actually give birth to him. Like, he was fashioned out of clay or something because he's just 100% man. And that's why Jamie Bell is so into him. Sprung fully forth from have, his father's head. He doesn't have original sin. We do know that Jamie Bell, however, that Asuka has both a mother and a father because he does tell the really good story about how, what was it? Was it that his father killed his mother so she wouldn't be raped? Was it that? Oh my God. I like how this movie has managed to have no woman, but it still has a reference to rape. Like how? How? How are there more rapes than women? And and women murdered than women. Um, Mm -hmm. This movie... Fails the Bechdel test. Because uh-huh. there aren't two women to be able to have a conversation with each other. <laughs> Correct. But it passes the F. Decker test. No. Because uh, the <laughs> no named women get murdered. <laughs> there has to be a named woman to get murdered for it to pass the F. Decker test. I'm, I'm not certain that was ever. That ever is absolutely. Ruling. It absolutely Sir, I was is. There when you were inventing that rule. And yeah, and if there has to said, be... Ollie, a named woman has to make it to the end. And yeah. you didn't think to yourself, what about the loophole if they don't bother naming any of the women? <laughs> so they can't just... There aren't any up. women. <laughs> yeah, there has to be a named woman in the first place. There's Sarah, one woman who is in for like one frame. They make eye contact and share a smile. Barely. And she definitely yeah, doesn't have a name. Yeah, but of course it's barely because Marcus has no interest in her. Because Marcus <laughs> no, is deeply in love with Eska. Which, I mean, which good for them. I'm very yeah. happy for their love. Yeah, me too. I just, like, I just a... still think this movie could acknowledge that women exist, but you know. We don't need it to exist because Eska and Marcus can do everything that any woman can. Women play roles beyond being sexual objects for men, in case you're interested. They, they, could, they could play roles other than being sex objects. You say it in case I'm interested, but you should know by now, Sarah. I am not. <laughs> Sarah, tell us what happens then in the plot before I get cancelled live on the broadcast. Just gonna like end this call and record the rest myself. Uh, so then some obnoxious fancy Romans show up, including this guy who I'm like, I don't buy you as Roman either. You're just like, and he's like, he's the senator's son. I'm like, yeah, you're, I get it. You're the senator's son. Like you live in the United States and your father is a senator. And he's like, my father will insist I go into politics. That's exactly what he sounds like. He, <laughs> he is in a country club somewhere. Uh, yeah. Trying to get um, baby Heisman to dance with him. Um, but she's only interested in dancing with Johnny. That's right. I'm making a reference to Dirty Dancing and the rich guy that this lad looks like and acts like. He is 100% a bougie American. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have... My my father, John Kennedy, wants me to go into politics just like him. Like that's More like my father, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> My father, Mitch, my father does look a bit like Mitch McConnell. <laughs> he 
he sort of looks like a young Mitch McConnell. <laughs> was there ever such a thing as a young Mitch McConnell? I mean, no, but if there was, it would look like this guy. Uh, so he basically manages just to what, like, goad Marcus into going beyond the wall to look for the Eagle Standard and redeem his family name. This this is another thing. So Marcus has got his leg fixed during the uh, the intense staring and grunting session with Eska. Um, and basically sex healed him, I think. And this kid is talking about the Eagle that apparently has been seen. Now... When we go to the trouble of getting to where the eagle is, how was that thing seen? Like, it is in the most remote part of northern Scotland, and the Romans don't go anywhere near it. Yeah, I'm going to have some things to say about that later, but yes. But in the context of this movie, yeah, where, who is seeing it where? Yeah. Oh, it's been seen recently. Like, where? By who? like who who's coming back and giving you this information it it clearly hasn't been seen when we get to where it is so yeah it's just it's one of those plot points that just has to show up but uh our good friend mark is like i'll go get it one man can do it and then he's like wait i'd better take esco with me because esk is uh another um local he's a briton yeah he's a briton but he's clearly not a scots brit like no. he's from southern Britain. Like yeah. they're not gonna know. Like when you get up to the top, all the men from the north end are grey. Like there's a reason they're called the seal people, is because they're putting mud on their faces to make them look gay. He he, grey, not gay. Um, Eska can pass for gay. He's not passing for grey, but he would not fit in with these people. So basically, it's just because he can speak the language. Well, and also from what I understand, that he. They wouldn't have actually spoken the same language. They would have spoken, potentially, at least, there is a possibility that they would have spoken vernacular languages which are similar enough that you kind of muddle through a conversation at least better than Channing Tatum could have. Yeah, he definitely muddled through it. Um, and as we find later on, he he is actually more than he's letting on. He's His dad... Whereas Channing Tatum's dad was the son of like a, a lead centurion, um, Eska's dad was the head of um, a, a clan. So he was a clan chief. So Eska is effectively a clan chief in exile because his clan right. has been uh, has been effed up by the Romans. Right. I think which I think is slightly calm because I think actually I'm pretty sure what's happened actually it might be that that clan has like allied with the Romans. But whatever. Where we're. we're we're going to be a little messy over here about exactly what is going on with these various clans, which is also something that I'm going to talk about more later. So yeah, so they're, they're going to go North. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say about this whole plan to go North is okay. So he did get fixed to some degree by this other doctor, but he still doesn't seem, cause like we see him like, like, because it seems like it's like bothering him again later. So it never seems like he's actually 100% recovered as opposed to like better enough that he can like walk. But it's not ride like... A, ride a horse and stuff. He's he like... before. Yeah, he's like less of a mess than he had been. But he's still not like good enough that he can rejoin the army. Yeah, right? exactly. So, he's so not, he, he wouldn't pass muster as to say, but 
he is still better than he was and he's basically I think he doesn't really think he's going to get the eagle he's just going up there to die like I'm going on right. my last mission you know yeah. I'll get into Valhalla I know that's a completely different idea but you know I'll die in battle as opposed to I'll just die you know living out my life on a farm somewhere in like Newcastle right and it's like and i wish they'd actually just like admitted that that it is basically just like a suicide mission that just inexplicably succeeds but they're acting as if this is like a valid choice that makes any sense and it's like no obviously like you're not like you're still do not seem like you are capable of serious fighting but it like it goes back and forth a lot i feel like and is like very fuzzy on whether or not it seems to think that's possible. He does a little bit of, of sword play. Um, they get attacked a couple of times, um, leading to the first instance of uh, Channing Tatum wanting to kill a child and actually killing the child this time. Yeah. Um, because they get waylaid by three warriors and a kid and Eska lets the kid go and Channing Tatum just flat out tomahawks him in the back of the head. Yep. Um, and then Hashtag let him die. Dead. Yeah, but it's just it's <laughs> like it's it's quite brutal because it's, it's yeah a, an actual child. child. It's yeah. not it's not like oh he's a young man 18, 17, 18. It's like this is a twelve year old yeah. running away because all of his friends have been killed and you just murdered him. him. Yep. Um, and he says our hero, Eska, our hero, the child murdering slave owner. He's a good guy. Um, <laughs> Uh, but when they're up there, they get attacked a second time, and this time it's by Mark Strong, um, as yes, a beloved British character actor who is uh, trying an American accent, and it's it is just it's so bizarre that that it's so like, weird. That's how bad Channing Tatum is at <laughs> acting or putting on accents. I don't mean because I like Channing Tatum; he's a, he's a genuinely interesting actor to watch, and. He's he's clearly charismatic, but he's so bad at putting on an accent that he can't even put on any attempt at an English or British accent, which is like the standard accent for people to put on. So much so that English people who are playing people who should have English accents or, you know, based on the rest of the movie should have English accents, are adopting an American accent to match him. But as I said, I think the fact that he, I think, is very slightly trying, and I think that makes it worse. As an American, he sounds like what an American who's trying to put on a British accent as a joke sounds like. There's a couple of other things about this as well. I don't think anybody is ever truly successful with this. And some of the people who are who we get told are successful, I think sound terrible. Um, Hugh Laurie's house... What part of America is House from? I don't think he has a specific really regional accent, but he at least sounds sort of plausibly American to me. But I'll tell you what, though, then the problem is. The problem isn't actually House, who I, like, or Hugh Laurie, who I think does okay. The problem is then that Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange sounds does like he's imitating... Yes, it sounds like he's trying to imitate Hugh Laurie, and that just completely loses it, and it's just a disaster. Like, so oh, you know who actually I think does the best American accent is Idris Elba in The Wire. I think he is yeah. super successful at doing like specifically like a certain kind of Baltimore accent. Yeah. Uh, so much so that I watched the entirety of The Wire and 
the season of The Office that he is in mm-hmm. before it twigged with me that he was British. Yeah, yeah, no, I genuinely, like, the first time I heard his real voice, I was, like, genuinely surprised. And, God rest him, uh, Michael K. Williams also mm. does a fantastic um, American accent. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Rest in peace, Michael K. Williams. Let's get back to this movie. Uh, Mark Strong comes in, he's playing Gerd. He was with um, Marcus's dad when the, the night Legion went missing, and from the sounds of it, just kind of ran off. Yeah, he's uh, just like, yeah, I'm just gonna go. I saw your dad making a valiant last stand, and I kind of slipped out the back. He was just like, you know, I'm, I just, I'm just gonna take off. I'll see you later. I, bye, bye, I, bye. I Roman goodbye him, <laughs> just like an Irish goodbye, but you want a chicken and you sneak out of a bathroom to do it. But then, yeah, so he tells them where to find um, the eagle and he says it's just with the seal people so we get to the seal people the seal people have their skin painted this particular shade of like blue gray which makes them look like they are aliens yeah it is a weird choice and i also find it a weird choice that this movie has as far as i could tell exactly one actor of color who was cast in this movie his name is taha rahim who plays the prince of the seal people which I'm all for when it's actually, like, race-blind casting, but in this it just seems like they're like, well, let's find, like, a brown person to, like, further, like, exoticize these people who, to, like, emphasize that they are, like, different from the Romans and also, like, barbarians, and it feels kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like, yeah, don't make them such a clearly bad guy, especially when we talk about the child murders that um Chad yeah. Kidd wants to do and the second and the slavery and the slavery we have child murder and we have slavery and then it's just like no these people are and they're just like oh, yeah but like the romans are great it's it's these people they're the only real bad guys the romans are fantastic so they get up with the seal people and uh once they find out that channing tatum is a roman they attack them and eska jumps in and goes no 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 no, no. he's my slave mm-hmm. and uh Obviously, straight away, I'm sitting there going, oh, yeah, well, he has to pretend that he's in charge because they will just yeah. kill Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum, it, on the other hand, is like, fuck you. You've betrayed me. I'm going how to How dare you. you? How dare you? I'll murder you for this. He's like, he saved your life. Like, yeah. three or four times this has happened. You just checked out the other guy's sister um, and, like... She was looking back at you, and he's coming over. I actually think it's really that the sister checked him out. I actually don't think he ever checked her out, because, again, no, like, no, but, and this is fine, there is zero interest that Channing Tatum is interested in women in this movie. No, no, he's definitely not. He's interested in one person, and it's Eska. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the fact that, like, Eska saves him again. Yeah, yeah. And yet still, Channing Tatum is sitting there going, I'll kill you. I'll kill you, how dare you? Yeah, um, but also this comes to the other part of the thing that's uh, a bit of an issue with this movie is, you might not believe it, that's the plot. We're we're we've now reached yeah we're basically end done the game of the movie yeah right so the movie's basically to, over at this point. To simply recap, Channing Tatum comes to the UK, <laughs> to UK doesn't exist, but he comes to Britain. Um, he uh gets injured in battle. He finds out that the 
Ninth Legion uh, and the eagle that was taken from them is up north. So after his injury and he's been discharged, he takes his slave, who his uncle bought for him, um, up north, and they have now located the eagle. That's it. Like that's yep. that's what the that's, movie that is. Was, that was that was the whole plot. We're good. We're an hour and twenty minutes in. There's about twenty minutes left in the movie, and what Which is just is fighting. They go, yeah, they go and steal the eagle from the seal people in the middle of the night. Because of course Eska does like come back to him and he's like, dude, the whole time I was clearly like putting this on so that they wouldn't kill us, and so yeah. now and obviously I was loyal to you, my boyfriend, the whole time. So let's yeah. go get the eagle. I, and then I it's like, oh okay. It's like, oh, I thought I'd lost you. Thank God. Um, and yeah. then they they crawl through a tunnel very reminiscent of a scene from the 13th Warrior except unlike the very clever and intelligent Vikings in the 13th Warrior these guys are making a crap ton of noise yep. um, you would hear it, it's a it's the middle of the night you would hear them a mile away with the amount of metal that's scraping on the yeah. rocks as they they travel through um, like, please try and be quiet they get to the eagle um, they get attacked by a couple of very overconfident warriors who don't even call for help. It's just like right. if we'll take we'll kill these guys. Um they kill them and we find out that uh Marcus's dad may have begged for mercy. We so yeah, know. it's that the one of the people that he's fighting against uh, it uh, tells him that or he or Marcus sees that this guy has his ring and says like how did you get that? And the guy like that was my father's and he's like oh yeah, your father, you know, he died begging for his life like the rest of them or whatever. But Marcus will never know. Yeah, and Esker refuses to translate. Um but later on, uh the turncoat Roman uh comes back um and he tells him but during this, Marcus gets injured. They're trying to escape to use a horse. A little kid comes out to uh, tell them. And he's like, oh, whatever. And then Eska convinces him to go in and like, ah, don't wake up your dad. Don't worry about it. You wait until the morning. It'll be nice. Um, and uh, basically, He'll be so happy to hear that we've left. <laughs> he, he's going to be, he'd be delighted to know we've gone. He wants us to get a nice early start. Uh-huh. Um, but obviously, this is sealing that kid's death. Yep. Ifly, there's, uh, I was going to say there's a, does a chase it's not so much a chase as uh they're cutting between the seal people jogging after them and these guys on a horse the horse dies um <laughs> rest in peace horse and because marcus is injured he kind of hides in a place that i've been to which is really cool it's called the devil's pulpit um and it's it's like a really narrow gorge that um because it had limestone in it and the rivers mm-hmm. cut into it and it, it looks really cool and epic if you get a look at it just look up devil's pulpit um and it's in scotland and it's right beside the glenfiddich brewery and uh mm. i recommend you go do glenfiddich brewery which is one of the nice. best scotch in the world mm. and two um it's just a really nice place to go yeah that sounds nice so uh, they're hiding out in this place and Marcus says, you know, I can't go on going without me. And Oscar's like, I'll never leave you. I can't because of the life debt. And that's definitely why. It's not because I'm in love with you. And uh, then Marcus uh, says, well, I'm freeing you now. So now you can go. But of course, he wouldn't really leave him. He goes and he fetches uh, Gwern, Mark Strong, but also all of these other survivors of the Legion of the Night. And it's like 40 people. It's like, ha- if you like maybe stuck around and helped, maybe like it would have turned out a little yeah, better. There's a bunch of them. Like you all just took off. But they're all the older guys who kept their uniforms. Like kept They've been their- like hiding their uniforms in the back of a closet for like 20 years. Yeah. And then Marcus absolves them. 
uh, of the sin of being cowards or whatever. And uh, they line up and fight the brave, young, healthy warriors of mm-hmm. the seal people. And it ends up with them winning. Like, that's basically it. Yeah. Uh, but not Or basically before... just, like, everybody dies except for Marcus yeah. and Eska, pretty much. So I guess that means they win. The seal prince uh, brings his son forward, the one that Eska had told not to wake him up, and kills him right in front of them. Now, yeah. at this point, I can only assume Marcus is sitting there going, maybe he's the man of my dreams. Um <laughs> For his casual way in which he just kills that. Uh, but they end up yeah. uh, surviving anyway. Guerin tells Marcus that his dad was a hero. But I actually believe the guy who told him in Irish that he wasn't. It's a little like... Mm, I think you doth protest too much. Because he's basically like... No matter what anybody told you. Your father died a hero. And it's like okay. <laughs> yeah it's one of those like... Don't worry what anyone else says. He's definitely a hero. Right. Um, but... They end up winning and then that's it. It cuts to them suddenly showing up in Rome. Also, wait. Oh, no, no. It's back at the base. But wait, oh, I do just want to say first. Once, okay. Marcus had a wound that was paining him so much that he could no longer go on. Yet he fights in and survives this battle. Yeah, because Eska came back. <laughs> and once he saw him, he just like, oh. I love love heals all wounds. Love heals everything. Um, love changes everything uh, Climby Fisher told us that um, but they basically get back and they drop the uh, eagle on the politician's table and the son of the politician who was being a dick earlier looks like he's the, they have this weird like reaction shot like he's like all yeah. shocked and like yeah. it doesn't really work like it it's not like right. he, that lad hasn't lost anything but yeah. he, like so yeah Marcus comes back and drops the eagle but they cut to this fella's face like it's the most shocking thing in the world and he's suddenly lost face it doesn't affect him it's not part of his plot he's just a prick who was there yeah yeah I, I don't like it, I get it he was a momentary antagonist for a second at a meal but he's mm-hmm. not like hey in your face Greg you said I couldn't ski down the mountain and I did ski down the mountain and I'm the best skier and we're keeping the resort open oh no my dad wants to buy the resort <laughs> like, it's not like it's not a, it's not that sort of situation they haven't yeah they've met for like that. half an hour nobody <laughs> he exactly. doesn't care and then Channing Tatum and she's just like oh weird legitimately have the end of a rom-com ending. they do of the two of them walking out with everybody watching them. They're clearly together as a couple. And like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And it's like, I'll leave it up to you. Because he's such a nice slave owner. He's left it up to him. It but sure he's no is. longer slave. He freed him, Sarah. I, yeah, because he's such a nice slave owner. You know, it sure yeah. is great that these civilized Romans who are such nice slave owners that came in and saved us from these barbaric tribes. Yeah, he's not a slave for him anymore. But he's a slave to that ass. <laughs> but yeah, no, they like, yeah. Oh, yeah, and they do just like, they run off together into the sunset and it's like, you know, just acknowledge that they're gay. Like, just just say so. It, it, just like, have them make out. Like, cannot stress this enough. Uh, sometimes we watch movies and we like to talk about it. And because Sarah's woke and I like to pretend I'm woke, um, <laughs> Sarah's actual woke and I pretend woke. 
Um, we watch this. It's it's nice to go like, oh, did those two are together? Blah 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 blah. This movie, I don't even think it's subtext. Like, it is clearly it's on like, screen that yeah. these two guys are like we like no. There are no female characters whatsoever. There's no tension between them and a woman. Eska is clearly at the age where they would be married, but he's still talking about how his mother died and his father died. Channing Tatum, you would assume, would have been married off at this stage. So I will say that actually is valid in that uh, there was at least a preference at this point for centurions to not be married. Okay. Because it would, like, distract them from their duty. Oh, well... And some some of them did anyway, but it is valid for him to not be married. I was assuming you just meant he had a preference for, you know, men. (laughs) I mean, he does, but... (laughs) The way they look at each other, the way they interact with each other, this is a gay couple we're seeing on screen. Yeah, and it is just like, and it, and it feels very much like, and it feels very like queer baiting though, because it's like, it clearly is, and that's clearly the dynamic is just an immense amount of romantic and sexual tension, but you're not going to go so far as to like have them kiss. You're not going to go so far as to have them actually like verbally say anything that is like 100% clear. It's just like, it, it's very annoying that it's like, why, why, just acknowledge it. You're like one inch from acknowledging it, just acknowledge it. Even the scene where Eska shows back up again, the pride on his face. That is a look of love. It's a look of They love. are in love. Clearing and they are looking at each other and they've got a little, like, little cheeky little grin on yeah. each other's face. And he's like, I told you I'd never leave you. Like, yeah. They are in love with each other. But they are clearly in love with each other. Yes. Yeah. And I am not one of those people who sees this in everything. I am 100% on board with just male friendships being on screen. I have some best friends that are better than any friends you've ever seen shown on, on movies that people say, oh, like people say Captain America and Bucky are gay, right? I have friends that are exactly like Captain America and Bucky, right? We we, we hang around together. Mm-hmm. We've known each other for years. Like... <laughs> We, we share secrets, right? But what I'm saying is, I'm all for male friendships being male friendships. Yeah. But that's not what this is. No. This is two gay lovers. Like, yeah. Um, I, I don't even want... Because I don't want it to sound like I'm just saying this in a sexual way. and Or, you know, it's, it, these guys are boning. I actually think they're a romantic couple. And yeah. I think there is romantic that. tension as well as sexual tension. Like there are beats of the story, like the beat of the story where he's like, you betrayed me. How could you? That is like, it's a rom-com. That's exactly what it is. Like this is it's, a romance that they are just not have, quite calling a romance. We have to have that minute, 25 minutes from the end where they have the falling heart. Yes. And then they get back together. Ah, actually, I didn't sell you into slavery and let you die. <laughs> I saved you. Oh my God, Matthew McConaughey. That's right. <laughs> Please lean against me now. Um, I said it. it uh, anyway, let's move on to the next section, which is a very false. So I'm going to start with a quick disclaimer. What does very false mean? Severe so falso means true and false or right and wrong. And so this is the section where we explore that. I'm going to give a slight disclaimer, which is that this is not quite my main period of research. Uh, I jokingly referred to this as the very, very early Middle Ages, which is obviously somewhat tongue in cheek, though also an acknowledgement that periodization is a, you know, invention and not natural to history. 
But, uh, and it is also, I do actually teach Roman related stuff uh, in some of my courses. But uh, just as a quick note, this is not like my main area. And I uh, will always maintain that we can get away with covering this stuff. Because you talked about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which means anything after uh, Holy Grail is fair game. Life of Brian. World. Life we of Brian. Life of Brian and yeah. Holy Grail. Oh. Uh, well, I did both, but life, but Holy Grail is Arthurian. Holy Grail oh, sorry, sorry. solidly yeah, makes sorry. sense. Life of, yeah, Brian, life of Brian. Uh, yeah. yeah, Life of Brian is like a little questionable. So, uh, and this is after that. So, yeah, so I can I can justify it. And as I said, I do teach some Roman things on occasion. I'll be teaching the Aeneid in the not-too-distant future in the spring. Yeah. So, to start, we begin with this opening crawl, and there's more things that I'm going to get into in the next section where I'm going to get into a lot of details about the Ninth Legion and about the Eagle. But for now, I want to mention this claim that they make that the reason Hadrian's Wall was built was in response to this specific catastrophe. It was that it was in response to the losing of the Ninth Legion. So what we know about Hadrian's Wall is that he ordered the wall built after a visit to Britain in the year 122. Uh, It's not impossible that construction actually might have begun on it somewhat earlier, but that it uh, would have, uh, you know, kind of that that essentially he kind of made some changes basically about exactly kind of where it was and how construction was being done. And that it is a wall that was intended to separate the Romans from the, quote, barbarians. But there's actually no really direct evidence that it was in response to a specific military disaster, as opposed to just a general sense of this being something that was necessary uh, for kind of establishing the frontier. Uh, And even that it was something actually that had been argued was uh, kind of social and cultural in some ways, as much as it was actually specifically military. And in particular, that's also, I think, important to note that it presents this area beyond the wall as this completely, you know, isolated Roman free area, but also even the area south of the wall, but kind of near the wall as being this really isolated area. And as you being essentially kind of further and further away from a, quote, sort of Roman civilization. In reality, the area around the wall basically constantly has settlements and garrisons And uh, there are Romans there and there are non-Romans there. And there's like a large population as opposed to this area that they're traveling through, which seems basically deserted. And also with the exception of these people who are the survivors from the ninth, there's like, had they like haven't seen a Roman in like a week or whatever. And that is definitely not true to what was actually going on. Sarah, just since it just popped into my head, do you think um, Hugin's wall is... uh the main um, inspiration behind the wall in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I think I think that's actually definitively been stated, I believe. Excellent. I don't know yeah. if it's definitively stated because I don't listen to anything G.R.R. Martin says. I, I believe he has confirmed, actually, that that's the main inspiration for the wall. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it is, I think, also very much kind of linked to this idea that we see in this film as well, right? Like this perception of the wall as being this barrier in a really definitive and permanent way in a, in a way that I think is not actually as that close to the reality, especially because in the period that we're talking about in around the year 140, Hadrian's wall actually isn't even the frontier. The frontier is further North. 
that uh, Hadrian's successor, Antoninus Pius, actually builds a different wall with the Antonine Wall, which is like near Glasgow, basically. Yeah, the Hadrian's Wall isn't even that impressive, to be honest with you. Like it's like, when you, when you finally get to see it, I'm, like maybe back in the day, it was the biggest wall around. It's you know. I reckon I could get over it if I wanted to. Well, but that is the thing, right? Is that the, is that, I mean, this is one of the things that's come up of the fact that the wall isn't necessarily a defensive wall per se, or at least not exclusively a defensive wall. It is at least as much essentially a kind of symbol. Yeah. As in a marker, this is your land, this is our land. Yeah. And a kind of definition of, you know, this is what belongs to the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, this is what is part of Roma, the kind of Roman cultural orbit. And that, um, yeah, and so this, like, this, the, the way in which the wall gets depicted is pretty, I would say, kind of fundamentally a, inaccurate. Uh, I will also note that it is a goddamn army and that centurions don't get to just decide wherever they feel like going. They, like, get orders. Uh, however, I do appreciate that they we get a real emphasis early in the film on those Romans making jokes, them um, all making fun of Marcus, because uh, uh, Romans loved jokes. We have a lot of surviving Roman satire, so satirical plays like that of Plautus, as well as satirical poetry like that of Horace. And we have graffiti jokes uh, scrawled on the walls of Pompeii. And actually, I believe some from Rome as well. There actually is a third century Roman graffiti, which is clearly Romans, just a Roman making fun of Christians. Goddamn Romans. Um, what it's I... a picture. I, I have to tell you what it is. It's, it's too good. It's a picture um, of a uh, donkey being crucified. And next to it, it says Alexa Menos worshiping his God. <laughs> I'm really trying to get you in trouble with the uh, the blasphemy police in Ireland. Uh, AD, uh, obviously meaning after donkey in this um, uh-huh. in this situation. Yeah. Uh, I also know that Romans were very fond of uh, drawing dicks and um, yeah, they love dicks. dicks and just putting them into putting them into the walls and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you going to point the way? I just put a dick here. Yeah. Point. Where yeah. Where are we going? Londinium. Stick a dick on that sign. People know it's Londinium. Yeah. Romans, Romans loved, Romans loved some dick jokes. They love some dick sculptures. I think they would have found our like weight clitoris joke very funny. Yeah. Romans, Romans well, had a sense of I mean, humor. You say they would have found it funny, but they're all men's there. So they wouldn't have found it at all. <laughs> Gladiatorial combat. So first of all, I will note that one of the the things the film does actually get right is that the place that Marcus is hanging out while he is convalescing is a real Roman base, uh, Kaleva Atrebatum, which is, you know, basically a kind of Roman settlement, which was the kind of place where you could basically enjoy the comforts that you would associate with being part of the Roman Empire, which included things like an amphitheater where you could go and see gladiatorial combat. So on the one hand, that part that you're seeing the gladiatorial combat is accurate, but this film reproduces a very common error, which is actually that we have the thumbs up and thumbs down backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we assume because it makes sense in our brains that a thumbs up means let him live and a thumbs down means hashtag let him die. Yeah. But it is actually the reverse, that the thumbs up uh, actually means, yeah, go ahead, kill the dude. So Channing Tatum was actually trying to kill him. 
<laughs> and the thumbs and either a thumbs down or a closed fist with the thumb wrapped around it is the some is the signal for mercy. Yeah. Yeah. I I'll be honest with you. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, but thanks, yeah, I've learned something new. Yeah. And it's it's a common error which I believe goes back to. Uh, I want to say like a 19th... No, it's earlier than that. It's like a 19th century painting. I would say Gladiator played a really big role in continuing to popularize it, actually. Mm. So it uh, it goes back, I believe, to like there's a 19th century painting that depicted it inaccurately. But I think that is actually one of the sources that Ridley Scott actually might have cited for the like, I thought this was so interesting. And it is indeed in Gladiator, I believe, which I, if I'm remembering correctly, because I've not seen it in a while. But oh, yeah. Well, we can add it to the list of uh, very early Fuck movies. Fuck you, Ridley Scott. Movies. <laughs> we can add it to all the many, many reasons that I hate Ridley Scott. Kingdom of Heaven can't be many, many reasons. There are many reasons within Kingdom of Heaven. Thank you very much. There's also many reasons within Robin Hood. And I still have not seen, because it is not out yet, The Last Duel. But I can guarantee that's going to give me plenty more reasons to hate Ridley Scott. I can just tell you right now that I'm sure about this. So let's talk about the try. Let's talk about some of the uh, problematic aspects of this film. Speaking of... um, (laughs) One of the things that it gets in that it gets wrong. There were in fact women in Roman Britain. <laughs> I don't. I've seen this movie. I'm, I'm not certain sure where Sarah. <laughs> but uh, seriously, though, uh, the tri- So they have these assorted uh, tribes based in Britain, and it does refer to some real tribes, including the Brigantes. But there are a lot of details that are rather fuzzy. There's a lot of elision between different groups. And in particular, uh, the seal people, the actual name is nothing. It's just, they just made that up. The tattoos and the painting and all of that that we see apparently is like a just weird freeform combination of like Polynesian and indigenous American, um, like tattooing and painting. And it's like, and again, it's just this like weird, like all indigenous people are the same, right? Kind of vibe. what I what I thought was weird about it is, if you're going with, like, if you're talking about Picts, uh, Brigant, Rigant, which was another version, just they, they live beside the Brigant, um, if you're going to go with that, they had tattoos, mm-hmm. like there there are tattoos still around, like there are still designs that those people had. Why not just go with them? Like even right. interlocking spider web designs, which are cool mm-hmm. like they you will find those in lots of the art or not art but like leftover artifacts from the era so i don't understand why they would suddenly go you know what we're going to have tribal tattoos just like the rock right and even the picts are getting a little messy because they are a group that's really first mentioned in roman sources in the third century and there's also seems to be some question about whether in the geographical area that they're supposed to be whether that actually is an area that would have been where the picts would have been as well as in fact the the kind of very fact that like calling them the picts is actually sort of also like a roman name kind of imposed on them as far as we can like it just means painted mm-hmm um, and there also tends to be, I believe, also some like question about exactly what they meant by painted. And it certainly it doesn't seem like it was this. So, yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, 
So yeah, they did not, I think, do a great job of depicting the tribes, even in the sense of accuracy, not to mention the weird, like, dynamic we eventually get to where it's just like well these are the savages and then the romans are civilization and isn't it nice that we get these like romans to like fix things through conquest and colonization uh and that's just in general kind of not a great message that we've that we've got here no but remember these are the friendly romans right yeah and And speaking of yeah they're only killing people so that they can get their stuff back yeah of course Uh, But speaking of the Romans and not great messaging, uh, slavery. (laughs) So on the one hand, as I mentioned before, it is, I think, really important to note that Roman slavery is not race-based the way that modern slavery came to be. So Roman slaves were mostly captives, although in various periods there was a possibility of debt slavery. So they would have been people who were Romans who would then basically essentially kind of sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debts. But most of the Roman slaves would have been captives, uh, you know, captured in a military context. But a number of the people who would have been, I mean, there are people who came from the same ethnic backgrounds as people who were enslaved, who then would eventually become Roman citizens. So it's, as I said, not something that is based on race in the same way as modern slavery came to be. And this is actually true of medieval slavery as well, that it's not race-based, although medieval slavery is sort of religion-based, which is a different situation. The other thing that's interesting about Roman slavery is that manumission is actually, seems to have been relatively common, and there was some amount of social mobility for uh, people who had formerly been slaves who were then freed, as well as for their descendants. So on the one hand, there are ways in which I think this movie, I appreciate that it acknowledges some of those aspects of slavery and the ways in which pre-modern slavery is really different in a lot of ways from modern slavery. But on the other hand, you know, slaves are still understood as property and are treated as property, despite the fact that some slaves do eventually end up becoming freed. And so the look at this really nice slave owner dynamic is also just not a great look and it seems like it really is intended to kind of overly sanitize roman slavery it's it is like anytime it pops up um in any movie like i i don't care where it's set but in particular in a situation like this if they're a slave owner you don't have to justify them and show them being a nice slave owner yeah It seems like we really shouldn't have to be saying that films should take an unequivocal stance that owning other people is bad. And yet, and yet apparently we do have, that's a thing that we have to like criticize that films can't take an unequivocal stance that slavery is bad. But sir. Yeah. They did go to the North Scotland and they went up there to get the eagle. So maybe you should tell us about the, So for this, I'm going to talk about the Ninth Legion and the Eagle of the Ninth. And in particular, the fact that you've got to feel a little bad for the people responsible for this film, because there are actually things that would have been at least the standard theory at the time the film was made that then got really undermined within like several years after the time the film was made. So essentially, we know that there was a Ninth Legion. We know definitively that this legion was based in and fought in Roman Britain in the early 2nd century. 
We know that it disappears from a lot of Roman records, that there aren't records that talk about it explicitly starting around the year 120, which has led people to believe they disappeared around the year 120, and that starting in, I believe, the year 197, there are lists of the legions that are active that are seemingly comprehensive, and at that point, the Ninth Legion is not included in that list. And so we can definitively say that basically at some point by then, they have been wiped out, basically, that they have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And the film, as well as the novel on which it was based, which I will note is a 1954 novel called The Eagle of the Ninth by Rosemary Sutcliffe, which is like basically a children slash like what now might be called a YA book. When you when something is described as YA, so YA didn't exist in like right, yes, right? Uh, yeah, that's essentially so, a designation that I'm imposing on it because it exactly. seems like it's not really for children, but it's not like yeah. So that's that's what I'm trying to get across here is there are lots of of books now which um get designated as YA books, yeah, but don't have the tropes of YA books. They were right. written for children or people in their teens mm-hmm. in the 40s and 50s and 60s which now people come along and go oh the famous five that's a ya novel right but if you read the famous five now it is so tame in comparison to something like the hunger games mm-hmm. um it's so tame in comparison to something like um divergent right famous. yeah and i just mentioned part that essentially like it is something that is from what I gathered, it seems like it is uh, a lot tamer than this movie is, which is uh, rather bloody. Uh, So yeah, just an interesting adaptational choice. But anyway, all this to say that uh, there was a historian, Theodore Momsen, who suggested basically, based on the timing that we knew of at the time, that the Ninth got wiped out in a fight against the Brigantes, who I believe are kind of on and off, allied with the Romans sometimes and sometimes rebelling, and uh, that they were uh, wiped out in this fight against the Brigantes at uh, Eboracum, which uh, is now York, because York is a Viking name that has nothing to do with this, is Jorvik, that has nothing to do with the Latin name, which is Eboracum, in around the year 108, so actually even before uh, it is presented as being. And then Sutcliffe popularizes this theory and her novel, and then that gets to be this movie. And this movie came out in 2011. But then in 2019, or sorry, 2015, they found inscriptions that suggest that the ninth still existed and was based in what is now the Netherlands in around 120 or so, and around kind of 120 to like one, yeah, like kind of the early 120s, basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, and that they're years before this movie was set. Yes, so in basically the period where the ninth, according to this movie, was supposed to have been getting brutally wiped out by the SEAL people, uh, what the evidence suggests is that instead they were just, like, chilling in the Netherlands. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they were just, fighting, but, you know. We bugger off to the to, to where the Dutch are and just hang out in the lowlands. It'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, just, chi- just chilling out in the Netherlands. Uh, and that there are people also who were identified or co- who were connected with the Legion at around that date who didn't die who like we know that they then like went on and had and had successful careers and uh, so it you know is not the case that so it's very clear that this is not the date or at least there's a pretty good argument to say that like we can't assume that the legion gets like totally militarily wiped out at this time 
we do, as I said, still have reason to think that the Legion had been basically military militarily wiped out by the end of the second century. And because of that, there's now a couple other theories. One is that they were wiped out in Judea during the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, so this uh, kind of second big Jewish revolt against Rome in around the year 132. And others have suggested that it uh, was wiped out in the war against the Parthians, this Persian group, in around uh, 161 to 166, essentially. There's also people who say that the inscription isn't necessarily definitive enough evidence to disprove the old the old theory, and that maybe we should still assume that they got wiped out back earlier in the second century against the Britons. But the story that this film presents is very kind of definitive is certainly one that is much more heavily questioned now than it would have been when the movie came out. And this is also true in some ways of the Silchester Eagle, which is the other big inspiration of the story. So essentially, Sutcliffe basically combined the story of the Lost Ninth Legion with this essentially archaeological find from 1866 in Silchester. So during uh, and actually at this Roman site, the Caliva Atrebatum in southern England. So the discoverer of this object, Reverend Joyce, suggested that the eagle had been the standard of a Roman legion and that it got torn from its staff dramatically during battle. And then, as I said, Sutcliffe combined this with the story of the Ninth Legion, and then we get this reproduced in the film. But there has then been recent scholarship by uh, a couple of uh, uh, Roman uh, Romanists, uh, people who work on Roman Britain, Michael Fulford and Emma Durham, which have questioned this aspect of the story as well. And essentially that based on mostly, I would say, stylistic grounds, but also some kind of complications in terms of the context in which the eagle was found, now argue that it's not actually the standard and that instead it's much more likely to have been a part of a statue of a statue of the god Jupiter. Uh, that would then include like an eagle kind of seated near him. Uh, and also I will note that the eagle also looks very little like it does in the film, including the fact that, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the, the eagle in the film as like being very obviously like gold or at least gilded. And yeah. that that would have, in fact, been standard for eagles who were, well, on, on standards. But that uh, the Silchester eagle, this particular discovery, is not gold and, in fact, shows no signs that it was once gilded, which is something that would probably show up, that would probably have left some traces. It, it, I've seen it just a, it, Sarah would have spotted me looking at thing because I've heard of the Silchester eagle because I've heard of J.G. Joyce before. Um, and I was just looking it up like it doesn't look anything no no not at all anything like what what i imagine and i've seen roman eagles in depicted a million times Mm -hmm. in various different things and it does not look like the silchester no no it looks nothing like this uh yeah and and you know and that's one of the things right is that the uh, is that stylistically it's not quite what you would expect from the eagles that were associated with the standards in a variety of ways and that it looks much more like uh representations of eagles that we see associated with these statues uh so yeah so we've had uh we've had a lot of discussion surrounding the elements of this film which uh, have made it even like a lot less historically accurate for us watching in 2021 than an audience a decade ago. Yeah, which it's nice to see something like that just 
like in the 10 years since this movie has come out that uh, historians have made up a new story um, because uh, excuse know, me we found additional evidence sorry they find an additional leather sandal somewhere and they're like we found an inscription we have found <laughs> an uh, inscription I, oh they found an inscription but I, yeah. I, like all joking aside like it is it's great to see that um 10 years later like they wouldn't be able to make this movie with the plot it has now because there would be so many people ready to debunk it before the day before it even hits the cinema which is what like uh the historical equivalent of neil degrasse tyson like jumping in to go "Mm, well really they didn't have laser swords so um yeah so i just think it's great I i like when i hear uh you know uh, I was going to say scientific knowledge, but uh, historical knowledge has moved on. Yeah, yeah, that we've, you know, we've made just new discoveries. And yeah, and I think that is cool, especially, and I think it also really emphasizes the ways in which uh, archaeological evidence in particular has uh, really uh, expanded in a lot of ways. Some of the, uh, you know, and, and incorporating his, uh, archaeological evidence into history has really expanded our knowledge in a lot of ways and is really an exciting way in which we can see not only new interpretations, but also often new evidence. Uh, of course, there are, you know, uh, there are certainly examples of people finding new just documents and archives that people haven't looked at as well. But that uh, archaeology in particular has really uh, led to some really fascinating revisions over the last decade or so. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So at this point, I think we can now go into the segment where we talk about a a story that we might want to create inspired by this one, which we call. Fabula Nostra. Ah, I'm getting so much better at these here. I know. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna like keep this and cut this in for episodes you're not on. You can cut them in anytime you want, Sarah. It doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> I'm starting to feel like a broken record because the last time I was on, which is not the first time I've done this, but I've gone to the David Gemmel well, where I've uh, I've picked something that he wrote. So David Gemmel has two separate little series. One is about the Brigant or the Brigant. Hmm. and it's about them fighting the Romans and about Conovar, the last leader of the Brigand, who was like a, a real historical figure. Um, and that two, two book series is, is very, very good. And the first one, Sword in a Storm. And um, he also has a series called Ghost King, mm-hmm. which is about King Arthur and how oh. King Arthur was secretly a Roman. And it's also about the Lost Knight Legion. It's legitimately Ooh. about the Lost Knight Legion um, and how it involves magic. And I would like to see that story get made into a movie. And I feel really bad because I do this every time. But the story of Ghost King involves... Um, so Arthur, as a Roman, it was his dad who led the like legion and that's how he ended up being just like a random kid like as in an orphan because his dad was gone effectively um and he gets taken in by a guy called Cullen Lachferroch um it's been a while since I pronounced that and Cullen um trains him up to be a warrior uh, and then finds out who he is mm-hmm. and 
helps him to introduce him to Guinevere, who is effectively his adopted daughter. And um, by the end of the first book, has created a situation where... Because <laughs> it involves so much magic. They can go back in time and rescue the Ninth Legion mm. to then help him use this Ninth Legion to take control of Britain, effectively. Right? Interesting. And it's very interesting. But the plot twist to this is it's actually a version of the Great Betrayal because mm. while they're doing this going back in time, it turns out that Cúlin uh, uh ends up getting de-aged by about 25 years and then shows up at the gates of King Arthur's new uh, home as a sexy young man. Oh. Um, and he introduces himself as Coolin, the Lord of the Lance. And mm. as it gets telephoned, because uh, I've, I've I learned recently not to use what I've always called telephone, um, but it gets telephoned back up to Ting as uh, the Lance Lord or Lancelot. And mm-hmm. it turns out that Coolin is actually Lancelot in the story. And that leads into the second one, which is The Last Sword of Power, obviously about... Um, Excalibur and uh, and how you know Lance the Lance Lord you know Lance is going to be here and uh, yeah I'd like to see that get turned into a movie so interesting <laughs> nowhere near as as much effort as I would usually put into this but I would really like to see that but as an aside I'm going to also give a slightly different version of this uh, that has been turned into a movie and uh, Sean Bean an actor I mentioned already in the show did a series called Sharp back in the 90s on British TV. Hmm. And uh, it's brilliant. And it's based on the Bernard Corn Cromwell, Cornwall? Cornwall? Yeah, the Bernard Cornwall novels. Remember we watched The Last Kingdom uh, for a little bit on Netflix? Oh, uh, yeah. We watched two episodes. It's very right? great. So he, yeah, he wrote that. Uh, and it's the same, so it's the same author. But, so, Sharp is about the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. And... One of the episodes, so they're like two episodes long, an hour and 15 minutes each episode to make a little series. So one of them is Sharp's Eagle. Mm-hmm. And it's about them trying to capture a Napoleonic Eagle for Wellington. Hmm. Um, and it's near the end of Napoleonic Wars. And that was his dream was because he lost something at some point. So it was mm-hmm. like, I want to yeah. regain my honor by taking mm-hmm. an eagle. And it's about how Sharp, goes behind enemy lines effectively to take down hmm. capture an eagle so Interesting. Uh, yeah read the david gemmel novel uh which i hope gets turned into a movie at some stage and he has been passed on now for i think it's coming up on 15 years so effectively his movies will or his his rights will pass mm-hmm. soon so there are a ton of great books again, and that's just yeah. one of them that could get turned in. Uh, and until then, watch uh, Sharp's Eagle. Also, Sharp, an amazingly good show. I recommend it to everybody. Hmm. All right. Way better than you think it will be because you'll sit down and watch and you're like, oh, you dirty bastard. Which is what Sharp sounds like. Good old Sean Bean. Oh, I'll fucking do ya, I will. So my version of the movie that I would like to make is... What if we actually just had a queer love story? What if we actually just basically had like kind of Brokeback Mountain, but set in Roman Britain? We did, Sarah. I know. It's I want the, the eagle. I know. I want the version where you're where they are actually acknowledging this. 
The other main change that I would like to make is that I think having that relationship be between a slave and his owner is not a great dynamic because I think there are a lot of questionable consent issues that could be raised mm-hmm. with that kind of sexual relationship. So uh, what I the other adjustment that I would like to make in addition to having it be actually just literally even like about, like it's not actually even about the search for the eagle. It's just a queer love story set in Roman Britain. And uh, in addition, it's going to be instead of a slave and his owner, uh, in addition, so like around at these frontier zones, in addition to there being the Roman legions, there are also these auxiliaries, which are made up primarily of locals who are, you know, who basically they kind of hire. And that's, you know, something that you can do as a local person is, you know, you can basically end up fighting for Roman Empire. And so he's going to be a Briton auxiliary. And I think it'll be a really interesting story of a queer romance and uh, two people think fig- uh, as well thinking about their cultural differences. I think they will have a beautiful romance with it as a pleasant sex life. Uh, there's a good chance that I've cut out the joke that I just made. So, <laughs> so just, just be aware that I made myself giggle. <laughs> I think it'll be a beautiful story. It actually does sound nice. Do you have yeah. any uh, any actors in mind? I'm fine with I'm fine with just keeping Channing Tatum and uh, and Jamie um, Bell. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they had a very good sexual and romantic tension in this movie. Hundred percent did. Yeah, I was watching that going. Oh, something. I wish I had somebody who loved me like this. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. As I said, I I think that had this film acknowledged the reality of their relationship, I think it would have been rather touching. I think it would have been, yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, so, it, so that's just a movie I want to make. Movie. Yeah. Just bring yeah, the, just bring these nice. guys back. Um, I will say though, maybe uh, maybe maybe replace some of the other central characters uh, with people who might be able to do some mildly convincing accent work or uh, at least seem less bizarrely out of place. Uh, I I insist we replace Donald Sutherland with Kiefer. <laughs> Marcus, listen to me. We're running out of time. We're running out of time. You need to get the eagle and also his love. <laughs> but I really like so my my version is as I said I, the, there's not even a war it's just a love story so it's, we're running out of time for you to introduce your <laughs> introduce your boyfriend <laughs> to, to my father your dad would be very proud of you do I make myself clear <laughs> yeah he says that so often in 24 uh-huh. do you understand me do I make myself clear yes you do Jack you've got a gun I get it <laughs> he's very clear Remember that time I invaded the Chinese embassy? That got me fucked up. <laughs> Audrey, I love you. He's just—I think he—he he could just be there. He could just be there, like their commander. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He definitely could be. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I think we should go on to the final segment, which is Estimadio. Where we uh we give our ratings of the movie on a scale of one to five or minus one to the Thirteen Warrior Six. So Sarah, uh, what would you give this out of um 
and a fight. So, I went back and forth. This is a fun movie that doesn't uh, take a lot of attention. (laughs) But, I don't love the politics of this movie is actually really what it is. Like, I don't love the, like, Romans versus barbarians dynamic that is very, like, imperialist and, like, pro-colonization. And I don't love the weird, like, slavery is good vibe that we're kind of getting out of this movie. It's good for the slave owners. (laughs) Right. And I, I just... We've watched a number of movies. That are not passed the if Decker test, according to which there has to be at least one named woman who doesn't die. I don't, I don't, I don't remember that being the, the clear indication. That um, is absolutely I the clear was, indication. As long as the named women don't die. Nope. There has to be at least they, one named woman who doesn't die. And usually, usually when films, woman. yeah, usually when films fail, it's because they, you know have a character who is important but who doesn't actually really get a name or they have characters who are important who are killed off i think this might be the first thing we've covered where they're just or that i've covered for the podcast where they're just straight are no women really in this movie like there's the one like sister whatever that he looks at that you know they like exchange looks for a second and a half but like she doesn't have a name she's not a character you don't know anything about her her name is Seal Prince's sister. That's not her name. It's it's her name in the credits at the end. So I feel like this is really, in some ways, I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't have any violence or brutality against women because there aren't any. But on the other hand, I feel like they just, they're, they literally managed to make an entire movie without a female character is also in its own way like a new low, I feel like, for this podcast. Uh, you say hello. Yeah, I do. I do. I say I say hello. Uh, so I think I'm settling on like a 1.75. Okay, okay. Yeah, that there's things that I've given a 1.5 that I hate more. So I think that 1.75 feels right. But... Wow, seriously, there are no women in this movie. There are actually, there there are definitely no women in the movie. Not a single named woman. Uh, like it, it. Not a single woman with more than a minute of screen time, even. I don't even, I don't even think any of them have a minute of like it's. It's like most a minute. It's maybe more like what thirty seconds. Like sister. It's a brief scene of like yeah looking at each other, and then in a couple of other scenes. There are women in the crowd. Like, that's. Like, I don't think there's more than a minute of this movie where you see women. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, combined. Yeah. The entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. Combined. Yeah. I'd say you'd be lucky to have a minute. Um, Yeah, so. Obviously, I have a different set of rating scales when it comes to, to the movies, right? Because I don't really need all that much historical accuracy. And, uh, as a blokey bloke, um, you don't, don't care if there are any women. Sort of stuff. No, it's not. Sir, <laughs> trust me, I do a good job of making myself sound bad. Um, but I'm going to give this a 2.25 
so that it I feel like you're just making fun of me with this like getting down to quarters no 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 so that it can average out at two which is what I what I realistically think the movie should be worth between the two of us it right I it's hard to say I enjoyed this movie right um there are some things in it that I enjoyed yeah but it's so light on plot. It's so inconsistent within its own narrative. The shocks or revelations that happen. It's like you meet a character. You don't know who he is. Revelation happens eight seconds after meeting them. Right? Um, the knowing looks that come from certain characters that absolutely foreshadow that there's more to them than meet the eye. Like the mm-hmm. first time we see Eska... And somebody mentions the eagle and he's like in the background and he he's like a dog sniffing a sausage in the house next door. Like he is awake and ready to pay attention. Like all of this, all of this is bad. It's bad filmmaking. But massive advantages, the entire thing is one hour and 39 minutes long, which is a breeze in comparison mm-hmm. to some of the movies we've watched before in particular a lot of medieval set movies seem to think that oh yeah the two and a half hours adds epicness this movie doesn't try to add epicness it has yeah. some violent scenes and then it's basically a little chase movie at the end and yeah and because of that i'm okay with it but the politics are bad the yeah. lack of women is bad um the unwillingness of them to acknowledge that the two central characters that they've clearly filmed as being in love with each other aren't in love with each other like just but make them gay just make, just them, make gay. them gay like just just admit it and say these guys are gay the, but the, the movie itself is is okay like it's two out of five or 2.25 just to, to make the average two like it's a 40 percent of a good movie if you want to watch... watch it yeah you're not going to yeah. be angry that you watched it yeah, if you want to, yeah, even with being like annoyed at various things, I'm not angry that I watched it. It was like, a, you know, I had a perfectly pleasant time and it was less than two hours of my life. Um, that's that's a huge, but I cannot stress enough how much a medieval set movie being an hour and 40 minutes is a bonus. As I, as I mentioned earlier on this podcast, I do actually now teach a medieval movies course. I'm actually adjusting my syllabus for next semester, not even because of things that didn't work per se, but because I had made the decision that I basically had three weeks in a row where I watched three hour movies that I hated and I can't do that to my brain again. It's a like, it's a decent movie. It's not a good movie, but it's definitely not a bad movie. If you are bored and don't want to put like a lot of thought into watching an action movie go for it there's some nice scenery <laughs> by which i include both the uh what's it called you... the devil's uh oh yeah the devil's pulpit we've got um... the devil's pulpit and we've got channing tatum's ass and those are both perfectly nice scenery yeah uh, and just watch it for the scene where he's getting the surgery done and jamie bell is like holding him down and <laughs> like it's it is so sexually charged. It's not even funny. Like as I said, I think if this movie, like if you cut, if you cut this movie just slightly, so that you actually like completely acknowledge the immense amount of sexual and romantic tension between these two men, I think it would be a much better movie. Yeah, definitely, um, Sarah. 
Where can people find me on the internet? You? You're a ghost. <laughs> I'm a ghost. That's right, people. <laughs> Don't come looking for me because I'll come looking for you. But, but you uh, can find you can find you on past episodes of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, recently, I did an episode of Megan Griffin's podcast, Judging Book Covers, talking about the Fear Street movies. So when this comes out, that should be round about the time that should be coming out as well so um they're on netflix and they're based on uh the orl stein novels and uh they're it's a great it's three movies that are great i hate horror movies guys if if you've listened to this podcast you know i did a halloween episode with sarah and i hated every second of those 88 minutes that felt like seven million hours that movie did feel so long oh my god it felt so long and was so short um but the three fear street movies i loved all of them from start to finish, uh, even more than Megan did, and Megan is a horror aficionado type person. Like, they're they're a breezy watch. So listen to that episode, and then uh, and then watch those. So yeah, find me on other podcasts, but find me on previous episodes of this where I'm the former 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 ex co host ex co host fired. No, just kidding. And Sarah, where can people find you? So you can find me here on this podcast uh, to which you should subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and also follow on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. Uh, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. And you can email me at media.evilpod at gmail.com. And one last thing just popped into my head. With my transition year students this year, our podcast of choice because i do a class where i teach kids how to make podcasts um is called criminal finds mm-hmm. and it's uh so apparently there's a show called criminal minds mm-hmm. uh, uh about the criminal behavior unit and um or behavioral analysis unit or something in the fbi so uh my students are going to talk about crimes that happened in ireland Hmm. And uh, and just do like Fun. a quick little twenty minute podcast. So if you look up criminal fines on your podcatcher of choice or on SoundCloud, you might find uh, some of my students talking about it. I, uh, the one that was we did last year, I was a part of the podcast, but I'd rather not be this year. So we haven't recorded our first episode yet, but hopefully it'll just be the students. And I exciting don't my voice at all, but uh, listen to it because they're good kids. Yeah, and it's about crimes in Ireland. Ooh. So you'll never know if they're real or not. It could be nepotized. <laughs> and, and you know, and no and nobody in America has ever heard of anything that's happened in Ireland since like nineteen eighteen. So, you know. Perfect. <laughs> Sarah, America, everybody. Thank, thank you so you much me. for coming on. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.